Strange Studies of Strange Stories. The room was warm and clean, the curtains drawn, the two table lamps alight, hers and the one by the empty chair opposite. On the sideboard behind her, two tall glasses, soda water, whiskey, fresh ice cubes in the thermos bucket. Mary Maloney was waiting for her husband to come home from work. Now and again, she would glance up at the clock, but without anxiety, merely to please herself with the thought that each minute gone by made it nearer the time when he would come home. There was a slow, smiling air about her and about everything she did. The drop of a head as she bent over her sewing was curiously tranquil. Her skin, for this was her sixth month with child, had acquired a wonderful translucent quality. The mouth was soft, and the eyes with their new placid look seemed larger, darker than before. When the clock said ten minutes to five, she began to listen, and a few moments later, punctually as always, she heard the tires on the gravel outside and the car door slamming, the footsteps passing the window, the key turning in the lock. She laid aside her sewing, stood up, and went forward to kiss him as he came in. Ah, marital bliss. The perfect 1950s family. What could possibly go wrong? We're here to find out at Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chris Lackey. Friends, I am Chad Pfeiffer. This is our free show for the month and can be heard on your radio dial at strangestudies.com as well as patreon.com slash witchhousemedia. Hey, while you're on the Patreon, why not subscribe? When you subscribe, not if, when, <laughs> you will get four shows a month on all the best strange fiction as well as a comment show, we'll call it Feedback now. That's the show where you are the star. You also get a bonus video episode, behind the scenes content. And if you sign up at the right level, you can can hunt and eat an endangered ghost. Wow. That's right. <laughs> uh, who was that reader? That reader was your wife, Heather Clinky. Ah, I thought I recognized that voice. <laughs> Thank you, Heather, for joining us once again. You may remember that last month's bonus episode uh, was on an episode of Manimal, a mm. television show yeah. from the 80s. You may also remember that Heather watched that episode with me at my request. Whether she would return to this podcast ever or trust me ever again, yeah. that was up in the air. We're lucky to have her back. Very lucky. Now, those opening paragraphs that she read were from a short story entitled Lamb to the Slaughter by Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl has yet to be featured on this podcast or the last. He was a writer and a fighter ace, pilot and a spy. And in 2021, Forbes ranked him the top earning dead celebrity. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. <laughs> from that article in September 2021, 31 years after Dahl died of cancer at age 74, Netflix paid a reported $684 million for the Roald Dahl Story Company. Oh my God. The streaming giant plans to build out a sweeping flood of programming from the British novelist's trove of stories. We're going to talk about what those stories are in a moment, but that's pretty crazy, huh? Wow. Prince was the number two top earning dead celebrity. Yeah. Michael Jackson, number three, but then it's back to the children's book, folks. Charles Schultz was at number four and Dr. Seuss at number five. We got to get into the children's book business, man. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a lot of money. I mean, how hard can it be? You have some kids, you, something weird happens. Pearl and the Piranha. Yeah. I just did it. I, I created a property. I love it. Let's go with this. Pearl, I think that she would be like the kind of person who would drop a piranha in the local swimming hole to, to freak out the kids. That also happens to be a swimming hole that had toxic waste dumped in it, which gives the piranha a mustache and also human level intelligence, but like a toddler's level of intelligence. <laughs> 
<laughs> what? Pearl has to take the piranha to school and she herself learns that she should have been nicer to those kids that she tried to prank as she learns to help along the piranha with a mustache. Yeah. Which obviously has outsider status in the grade school. That is amazing. But we can talk about Pearl later. <laughs> Let's learn about Roald Dahl. This is an author that folks have been wanting us to cover for a long time. Roald Dahl was born in 1916 in Wales to Norwegian parents. He was named after the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. Not his tent, remember? In Abinson's tent? Mm -hmm. We covered it back in episode 446 of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. He was an explorer. His father died when Roald was very young and left his mother with a small fortune, six million equivalency to modern pounds here. Oh, wow. His mother stayed in Wales to give her son the education his father wanted him to have. Right, because she was Norwegian like his father, and the whole family could have returned. He actually had a few siblings from, his father was married previously to a French woman. Mm, yeah. She passed away, then he married this woman and had some more kids. He thought English schools were the best, so they stayed there. When he was eight, he was caned in school for putting a dead mouse in a sweetie jar mm. with three other boys. He called it the Great Mouse Plot of 1924. <laughs> the owner of that sweet shop was mean and vile and was his inspiration for Miss Trenchbull in the story Matilda. Matilda, yeah. Are you familiar with Matilda? Is oh, yes. Yeah. Well, the sweets in the jar were also gobstoppers in mm -hmm. the Great Mouse Plot. Jawbreakers is what we called them in the States growing up. Yep. But I, I know what a gobstopper is, of course, because of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is based on his book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's right. That's the whole reason I know what that means. At age 13, he went to school in Derbyshire, where there was a lot of physical abuse from corporal punishment in that school as well. I guess that was just a thing in the time in England. Yeah, canings, like you said. And there was also abuse from the older boys that was just permitted. Yeah. It was accepted that that was going on. So much so, it made him doubt the existence of God. That's what he said, yeah. There's an undercurrent of cruelty in Dahl's work, even in the children's work. Oh, yeah. And I believe it's influenced by this inhumanity he witnessed and experienced here as a child. At school, Cadbury would send free chocolate to the students mm -hmm. so that they would try it and test it, basically testing candy on these kids. And this gave him the idea of making his own chocolate desserts. Of course, this was fuel for his book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He wanted to invent his own chocolate bar. So Cadbury was sending stuff, was testing it on the students, like yeah. maybe it'll make them grow an extra arm or something, or just to see if they like it. I think just to see if they like it. Got it. <laughs> After school, he hiked through Newfoundland, and then he settled down into a corporate job in 1934 with Shell Petroleum. With the company, he traveled around the world. Now in 1939, he was made lieutenant in the King's African Rifles, and commanded a platoon of Askari men, the Africans who were under British rule at the time. Eventually, he became a pilot and flew in the number 80 squad of the RAF. And in 1940, he crashed his plane due to an emergency landing in the desert and almost died. He lost his sight, but it soon returned. Wow. He had five aerial victories that made him an ace. But more than likely, he actually had more than the five. But five is just what's on the record. He definitely did. We don't have the time here, but he had a pretty storied flight career. I mean, just oh that he went blind and came back from it, then flew again alone is crazy. It's crazy. He was lucky to survive, and he did a lot of damage as a pilot. He had his first aerial combat in 1941 over Greece and took part in many battles, including the Battle of Athens. He was out of the RAF soon after because he was blacking out from headaches. Can't really have your pilots doing that. No. But he became an instructor, and with his record, Dahl then became an assistant to a British diplomat in the U.S. Eventually, he did spy work for the U.K. in the U.S., feeding information to Churchill. Yeah, and again, there's a lot to learn about this. There's a book called The Irregulars that's all about Dahl life as a spy. It's interesting enough. I'll give you the gist of it before we dive into the story. Mm -hmm. The spying was more about America wasn't in the war yet. Churchill wanted to get us into the war. Uh -huh. 
Dahl's job at the embassy was giving pro-British speeches, and he hated it because it wasn't really getting anything done. It was boring. But he met the author of the popular hornblower novel, C.S. Forster, who was working as well for the British Ministry for Information. Yep. And Forster thought Dahl's fighter pilot tales would be pretty exciting for the Saturday Evening Post. He said, give me a, a few of these and I'll write them up. But Dahl offered to write this article himself. Yep. And the subsequent article shot down over Libya caused a big stir. And he's a good-looking guy. Yeah. So soon he found himself being invited to parties hosted by some of the leading lights of U.S. high society. And this, in turn, brought him to the attention of the British spymaster William Stevenson, who Churchill had charged with getting America on board of the war. So mm -hmm. Stevenson, he was a Canadian businessman prior to the war. He'd been, like, feeding Nazi intelligence to Churchill before Churchill took over as prime minister. He was operating this network of spies operating under the name of the British Passport Office, actually called the British Security Coordination, BSC. And it was a hugely successful operation. Also enrolled in working for the BSA under the name the Irregulars were Ian Fleming, yep. the James Bond novelist, mm -hmm. David Ogilvy, who launched a, the gigantic advertising firm, Noel Coward, the playwright and raconteur, and the Gone with the Wind actor Leslie Howard. Wow. And these guys were so effective at espionage that, you know, Leslie Howard's passenger plane was shot down over the Bay of Biscay because, and it killed everybody on board. The Nazis, they say, wanted to kill him because he was so good at his propaganda. Wow. Ashley from Gone with the Wind. Perhaps the BSC's greatest success was the production of a fake map of the Nazi invasion plans for South America that was so convincing, Roosevelt brought it up in Congress using the forgery as proof that Hitler planned to park his tanks right on the U.S.'s doorstep. So Stevenson wanted Dahl and the Irregulars. His chance came in 42 because Dahl was dismissed from the embassy and sent back to Britain for misconduct. I don't know exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. Stevenson immediately recalled him back to the States, promoted him to wing commander and put him to work for the BSC. Sliding easily into society parties, the urbane popular officer used his considerable oratory skills to change minds. Dahl was especially good at worming his way into the boudoirs of women who were married to some of the country's most influential people. Wow. Stevenson took note of Dahl's way with the ladies and sent him on what was perhaps the most infamous mission of his espionage career. Claire Booth Luce was the wife of the ferociously anti-British isolationist print magnate Henry Luce. Luce despised the British, hated Roosevelt, and was totally against America's involvement in the war. He used his magazines, Time and Life, to run wow. anti-British and isolationist articles and was thus fair game as far as Stevenson was concerned. Dahl was tasked with seducing Luce's wife, Claire, in the hope that he would gain information Stevenson could use to either blackmail Luce or discredit him and his magazines in the American public's eye. Wow. So it didn't take long for Dahl to get an invite to one of Claire Luce's lavish Washington society parties. She fell instantly for the dashing British war hero. Unfortunately, Dahl had underestimated Luce's voracious sexual appetite. This led to what is probably the most astonishing thing ever sent to a superior by an intelligence officer. I am all out, Dahl <laughs> shouted down the phone in a call to his superiors, begging to be reassigned. That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to the other for three goddamn nights. <laughs> An exhausted Dahl carried on with his mission. He spent the rest of the war doing Stevenson's bidding in the pair to remain friends for decades. After the war, Stevenson was recognized for his services uh, with a knighthood. He's today hailed as one of the most important figures in the history of British espionage, as well as being instrumental alongside Ian Fleming in laying the foundations of America's modern security services. Wow. So there you go. I got a lot I got a lot of that information from a history channel article. There's not a lot of real history on the history channel, but that stuff is all true. <laughs> Verified from other sources. Wow. So pretty exciting life this guy led. Well, after the war, he married American actress Patricia Neal, who was in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and they had five children together. I guess he wasn't all fed out after all. <laughs> he just needed he just needed a break. <laughs> he That's just all. Needed a break. 
His first book, The Gremlins, was published in 1943. He wrote kid stuff, but he also wrote dark adult stuff as well, including this story, which was published in Harper's Magazine in 1953. The story was adapted for a teleplay for Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1958. And he wrote lots of well-known stories, many of which have been adapted into films and or musicals. Mm -hmm. BFG, Big Friendly Giant, The Twits, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Witches, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, James and the Giant Peach. Wow. I could go on. Yeah. I just saw a stage production of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory this weekend. Really? And add a few of the songs from the Gene Wilder movie, but then a bunch of other original mm -hmm. new songs. The kid, they had a girl playing Charlie, and she was great. She was awesome. Wonka, eh. <laughs> Not so great. <laughs> well, you played Willy Wonka. We were in a production of yeah. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in high together, school. Together, and I, I was Willy Wonka in high school. Yeah. So that's why you didn't like the yeah. actor. It's pretty much, it's Gene Wilder, me, Johnny mm -hmm. Depp, and then this guy's like way down the list. Was worse than Johnny Depp. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, was not, it wasn't good. I actually didn't see that Tim Burton one, did you? I saw parts of it. Mm. Does that count? <laughs> Sure. I had The Great Glass Elevator, that book, yeah. uh, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, when I was a kid. But I actually didn't read it because I wanted – it's a sequel to The Chocolate yes. Factory, and I wanted mm -hmm. the first one, and I never got it. But I would flip through the illustrations by Joseph Schindelman, which were so weird. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah. They're in um, The Chocolate Factory as well, and Charlie just looks all emaciated. They're like pencil drawings. Yeah. They're very creepy. And yeah, those very, those very much impressed me when I was a kid. But it's amazing the amount of stuff that this guy has. I can't believe that Netflix paid that much for it, however. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's yeah. insane. That's an insane amount of money. Roald Dahl died in 1990. At the age of 74, he had a rare type of blood cancer. Well, but enough of this guy. I mean, we could talk yeah. about him forever. He had a crazy life. So let's get into this story. Sure. It begins with a dutiful wife, Mary Maloney, waiting for her police detective husband to come home. And she loves this guy. As you heard, it's 1950s to the max. She is the perfect housewife. And as we heard, she's waiting with kind of this thrill of anticipation for her husband to return from his police job. She loved to luxuriate in the presence of this man, and to feel almost as a sunbather feels the sun, that warm male glow that came out of him to her when they were alone together. She loved him for the way he sat loosely in a chair, for the way he came in a door or moved slowly across the room with long strides. She loved the intent, far look in his eyes when they rested on her, the funny shape of the mouth, especially the way he remained silent about his tiredness, sitting still with himself until the whiskey had taken some of it away. Now, he finally gets home and is quiet, but she doesn't seem to mind, and she makes drinks, and they sit quietly in their parlor together. He seems tired and distant, and of course, as we heard at the top, she's six months pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> so everything seems all right, except, quote, he did an unusual thing. He lifted his glass and drained it in one swallow. Well, there was still half of it, at least half of it left. So this isn't how he usually drinks. Mm -hmm. Something's bothering him. But she jumps up to get him another one right away. Maybe he just wants a second. Yeah, and she's very subservient to him. It's very 1950s sitcom-ish mm -hmm. style. But maybe she's just into being a sub. Yeah, she's embraced the, the full June, June Cleaver. She loves it. She says, darling, yeah. shall I get your slippers? No. He's made himself another drink, a strong one. She asks if he would like some cheese, since she hasn't prepared food. It's Thursday night, and they usually go out for dinner on a Thursday night. And coldly, he says, no. If you're too tired to eat out, she went on, it's still not too late. There's plenty of meat and stuff in the freezer, and you can have it right here and not even move out of the chair. So she gets up, and he yells at her to sit. Listen, he said. I've got something to tell you. What is it, darling? 
What's the matter? He had now become absolutely motionless, and he kept his head down so that the light from the lamp beside him fell across the upper part of his face, leaving the chin and mouth in shadow. She noticed there was a little muscle moving near the corner of his left eye. This is going to be a bit of a shock to you, I'm afraid, he said. But I've thought about it a good deal, and I've decided the only thing to do is to tell you right away. I hope you won't blame me too much. And he told her. It didn't take long, four or five minutes at most, and she sat very still through it all, watching him with a kind of dazed horror as he went further and further away from her with each word. So there it is, he added. And I know it's kind of a bad time to be telling you, but there simply wasn't any other way. Of course I'll give you money and see that you're looked after, but there needn't really be any fuss. I hope not anyway. It wouldn't be very good for my job. I think it's interesting that we don't get any details about <coughs> why he's breaking up with her. Mm-hmm. And I guess that leaves it up to us to make it as horrible or as mundane as you like. You know, it could be, the thing is, I'm in love with a border collie named Rex. And <laughs> we met up in an opium den where we both beat old ladies with switches and drank the tears of orphans. So there it is. I hope you won't make a fuss. What a revelation that would be. <laughs> That's where your mind went. <laughs> That's, you know, the worst case scenario. That's the worst case scenario. You're yeah. right. That's exactly the worst case scenario. I think most <laughs> likely it's another woman of some kind. But you're right. There's no details. You know, it's how a revelation like that can change your life so much in the space of five minutes. Yeah. For her, this is the sudden death of her entire future. Her entire identity is wrapped mm-hmm. up in being yeah. with this guy. Everything. In the space of five minutes, she's gone from loving and loved presumably wife, to single, rejected single mother who who knows what friends she has or what prospects. It's a bullet to the heart. Yeah. And I'm sure she doesn't even perceive the details of this, just the binary reality of it. I was this and now I'm that. Yeah. And so do the details. She might not have not even really processed them. Well, yeah, it says that she just kind of ignores it at first. Like she thinks maybe she made it all up in her head and it didn't really happen. You know, like she, it was just her thinking about what if this happened. Yeah. But it didn't really happen. So she just tells him she's going to make supper. First stage of grief is denial, right? And yeah. the stages of grief, I don't think were really a thing until the 60s. But this, I'm sure that the author knows all about it. The first thing mm-hmm. you do is go, nope, this isn't happening. So she goes about her business. I'm just going to go ahead and make the supper. So she goes down to the cellar and she gets a leg of lamb out of the freezer. And when she comes back, he's standing looking out the window. For God's sake, he said hearing her, but not turning around. Don't make supper for me, I'm going out. At that point, Mary Maloney simply walked behind him and without any pause, she swung the big frozen leg of lamb high in the air and brought it down as hard as she could on the back of his head. She might just as well have hit him with a steel club. Oh, wow. Right into anger. Yes. Into the next stage pretty fiercely. Yes. Uh, but he, man, he was making me so bad too when he goes earlier. I know it's kind of a bad time. She's <laughs> six months pregnant. <laughs> but let's not make a big deal out of it. For my job. Yeah. My job is really important. He sways for a few seconds and then he falls to the ground dead. Wow. I, you know, I saw a guy on a motorcycle get hit by a car once and it was a little like this. He jumped, he bam, it hit him. Mm-hmm. Whole motorcycle blew apart. He hit the pavement, jumped up with a detached handlebar in his hand in the middle of the intersection and calmly crossed to the side of the road like nothing had happened mm-hmm. and then whipped the handlebar through the air at the side of a building, swayed a little, then collapsed. It was just, just like wow. this. Wow. She goes, wham, you know, calmly hit him. She stepped back a pace, waiting 
Then he crashed to the carpet. The violence of the crash, the noise, the small table overturning helped bring her out of the shock, still holding the ridiculous piece of meat tight with both hands. All right, she told herself. So I've killed him. <laughs> she calmly thinks about her situation. If she gets pinned for this, it's death. It's a death penalty. Mm-hmm. What do they do if somebody gets a death penalty and they have an unborn child? Do they mm-hmm. die with a mother? You know, so she's thinking about this stuff right away. And very clearly, she's the wife of a, te- of a detective. So she knows what the implications are of this crime. And she knows some of the intricacies of the law. Calmly, she takes the leg of lamb, puts it in a pan and prepares it and then sticks it in the oven. Lambs in the oven, almost as if it's something just to keep herself busy while she's thinking this through. Everything seems to be happening with her automatically. That lamb will take quite a while to cook from frozen, so she just forgets all about it. Now, do you think, obviously this was a crime of passion. I doubt that she said, I'm going to leave that leg of lamb down there in case I need it later for a murder weapon. But she is (laughs) executing a plan kind of like immediately. Is she just working on instinct or do you think that she's thought about this in the past? I feel like she's working on instinct because at the top of the story, she sounded like she was totally in love with this guy. Right. I think that this is just, she's a smart woman and Mm -hmm. it's go time. Yeah. She turns it over in her head and goes, I can't afford to hurt this child. No. So I got to just take care of business. Yeah. So she goes upstairs and she gets herself looking right and then she begins rehearsing in the mirror. She tried to smile. It came out rather peculiar. She tried again. Hello, Sam, she said brightly aloud. The voice sounded peculiar too. I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, and I think a can of peas. That was better. Both the smile and the voice were coming out better now. She rehearsed it several times more. She puts on her coat and she walks to the grocery store. Sam, the grocer's there. Why, good evening, Miss Baloney. How are you? I want some potatoes, please, Sam. Yes, I, and I think a can of peas. Patrick's decided that he's tired and doesn't want to go out tonight, she told him. We usually go out on Thursdays, you know, and now he's caught me without any vegetables in the house. I've got meat, thanks. I've got a nice leg of lamb from the freezer. She's like almost giving out too much information, but otherwise she's acting pretty cool, laying some tracks. Yes. Sam asks her if she wants some dessert, and he recommends some cheesecake since he knows Mr. Maloney likes it. Perfect, she says, and then she leaves. Getting something for her husband. Mary goes back home, just as if her husband was waiting for supper. It's a good part of the story psychologically, too, as she really convinces herself it's all real, what she's doing. All she was doing now, she was returning home to her husband, and he was waiting for a supper. And she must cook it good and make it as tasty as possible because the poor man was tired. And if, when she entered the house, she happened to find anything unusual or tragic or terrible then naturally it would be a shock and she'd become frantic with grief and horror. Mind you, she wasn't expecting to find anything. Do everything right and natural. Keep things absolutely natural and there'll be no need for any acting at all. Therefore, when she entered the kitchen by the back door, she was humming a little tune to herself and smiling. Patrick, she called. How are you, darling? So she puts the groceries on the table and she goes into the front room. She checks on him. He's lying on the floor, his arms twisted underneath him. And she starts to cry, but she really cries. All the old love and longing for him welled up inside of her, and she ran over to him, knelt down beside him, and began to cry her heart out. It was easy. No acting was necessary. She compartmentalized very efficiently. She was able to get a little business done first, and then she really let the grief out, really let the grief of his loss hit her when she needed to. She gets up, goes to the phone, and calls the police. You mean Patrick Maloney's dead? I think so, she sobbed. He's lying on the floor and I think he's dead. They know who he is because he's a police detective and they know her because they've been by for dinner, et cetera. So 
Here they come. So the police arrive. One officer she knows, uh, O'Malley's there. She tells him that she found him like that when she got back from the grocery store. While she was talking, Noonan discovered a small patch of congealed blood on the dead man's head. A photographer, a doctor, more police, a whole crime scene starts developing as people file into the living room. The detectives ask her which grocery she visited, but they're treating her very kindly. So they're they're questioning her a bit, but they seem to be buying her mm-hmm. and not, they don't suspect her at all. Uh, they were exceptionally nice to her and Jack Noonan asked if she wouldn't rather go somewhere else, to her sister's house perhaps, or to his own wife who would take care of her and put her up for the night. No, she said she didn't feel she could move even a yard at the moment. Would they mind awfully if she just stayed just where she was until she felt better? She didn't feel too good at the moment. She really didn't. Now, the doctor is able to tell her husband was killed by a blow to the head. Administered with a heavy, blunt instrument, almost certainly a large piece of metal. They were looking for the weapon. The murderer may have taken it with him, but on the other hand, he may have thrown it away or hidden it somewhere on the premises. It's the old story, he said. Get the weapon and you've got the man. So we know that they may not suspect her, but if they do find that murder weapon, you know, maybe they could fingerprint it Mm -hmm. or... Wait a minute, dinner's in the oven! (laughs) So they ask her if there's anything around, like a wrench or something, and she says, well, maybe in the garage there might have been something like that, but nothing's missing, nothing's out of place. She asks for a drink, and Sergeant Noonan brings her one. She says, you know, he should have one too, with all that's happening. And he says, well, I shouldn't, but of course he does anyway. Mm -hmm. And he tells her that your lamb is still in the oven, and she asks, oh, would you please turn it off? (gasps) Oh, dear me, she cried, so it is. And so she's excellently setting up these feelings of hospitality and warmth. And this thing just seems to be happening totally organically. He's the one who noticed the lamb. Uh And she says to Sergeant Noonan, would you do me a favor, a small favor, you and these others? She says, since you've all been here for so long and you've missed your own suppers, please have some lamb. She says she doesn't want to eat it because she's upset. It was in the house where her husband was just murdered. And also, Patrick would never forgive me, God bless his soul, if I allowed you to remain in this house without offering you decent hospitality. (laughs) There was a good deal of hesitating among the four policemen, but they were clearly hungry. And in the end, they were persuaded to go into the kitchen and help themselves. The woman stayed where she was, listening to them speaking among themselves, their voices thick and sloppy because their mouths were full of meat. Have some more, Charlie? No, better not finish it. She wants us to finish it. She said so. Be doing her a favor. Okay, then. Give me some more. That's a hell of a big club the guy must have used to hit poor Patrick. One of them was saying, The doc says his skull was smashed all to pieces, just like from a sledgehammer. That's why it ought to be easy to find. Exactly what I say. Whoever done it, They're not going to be carrying a thing like that around with them longer than they need. One of them belched. Personally, I think it's right here on the premises. Probably right under our noses. What do you think, Jack? And in the other room, Mary Maloney began to giggle. And that's the end of the story. It was the perfect crime. I read a lot of uh, EC comics growing up, and there, you know, there were a lot of revenges on cheating wives, and so I was glad to see this one going the other way. Yeah. In fact, that's almost the element of it that's strange. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also odd in that he was killed by food, and that everything all worked out the way it worked out. Like it just seemed fortune was completely on her side, and everything fell into place. 
for her, almost in a supernatural way. Yeah, quick thinking on her part as well, but definitely mm. that that ironic twist. You mentioned that this was on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's one of the few that he also directed. Oh. So if you watch that one, it's a Hitchcock short film. Wow. The narrative element of the housewife killing her husband and letting the policeman partake in eating the evidence was used by Pedro Almodovar in his 1984 movie, What Have I Done to Deserve This? with a leg of mutton. Oh. So another director liked it. Apparently the story was suggested to Dahl by Ian Fleming of James Bond fame, who said, why don't you have someone murder their husband with a frozen leg of mutton? which he then serves to the detectives who come to investigate the murder. So the plot, kind of someone else's. Wow. Given that insane Netflix deal, I would imagine you'll be seeing this story in some new way soon. You know, maybe it'll be a series like Dexter combined with a cooking show, maybe. <laughs> she kills different baddies with that she yeah, yeah. then watch her cook. I don't know. Mm, that makes perfect sense to me. The only thing I think that could stop her at this point is we don't know what he was doing. So if there was some woman he was going to run away with and he's like, tonight I'm telling my wife. Yes. And then he's dead. Yeah. This person might have some idea of what went down. Uh -huh. But it is the 1950s. So, you know, are they going to admit to the affair? What are they going to do? Yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't say there was an affair. It specifically omits what his reason is for leaving her. If it was just another woman, then why why didn't he say it's, you know, I've been another woman? Why, why is that intentionally omitted from the story? My feeling is that it's omitted from the story so that it doesn't suggest anything extra in terms of because this is it's keeping the focus, which is about how does this woman deal right with the evidence and how does she deal with having done something impulsive? How does she deal with being rejected so wholly suddenly mm -hmm. when her whole life was devoted to this man? And if he says, you know, I'm running away with this other woman, now you'll be going, well, was their marriage bad? Or uh, it gives you too much detail to deal with, whereas it's really about the rejection. So does that matter? And it also makes you experience what she goes through a little bit where those things, I mean, I don't know. If you got a revelation like that, do you even want to know? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a torture in and of itself, the details. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. What do you think? But there's other people that uh, the details are important. Like if somebody gets cheated on, they want to know everything. They want to know all the details about it because they well, somehow, yeah. if you, you know what happened, then you could process it or you could fill in the blanks or the things that you thought happened in a certain way. You know, you could re-edit your memories or the timeline of your life mm -hmm. to be what actually happened and then move on from there. But I, I don't know, maybe it was a narrative device, like you're saying, just to kind of keep the focus on her. But also, I think I like the little bit of mystery and it could have been something weird or just something boring. Like it could be the whole other way. It's just like, I don't love you anymore. I just don't, I don't even like you. I don't like looking at you. You just make me sick. I'm done with That's you. true. Which is, is harsh and cruel. And of course, immediately we're on her side because we know that she is a good woman. She cares for her husband. She loves him. You know, she just loves him to death. Mm -hmm. And to be rejected that way is so painful. Immediately bonds us to her and her situation. I mean, it's true that he could have said, you know, I was doing some reading in a, in a tome and a journal and I did a little <laughs> interviewing in town and I found out you're actually possessed by your grandfather. Wow. And you've been putting one over on me. Yeah. And I think it's time I move on with my life. And then that's when she hits him with the old mutton leg. There you go. So you're right. That's <laughs> why they probably left it out. It all ties together. <laughs> it all ties together. I don't know. I just thought this was such a great story. It does. It's This is more of a crime story. It is. Than it is more of a mystery than it is really, I guess, a strange story. But it's so well written. Yeah. And, and it's so, uh, it's got such a delicious 
no pun intended irony, uh-huh. that, you know, I thought it was a good one to cover. Yeah, I do too. It's in a kajillion anthologies. It's held up as a great example of a short story. And I, and yeah, it does, it's, it's something Poe-esque about it. Yeah, it is very much. And we've covered Poe and Poe's stories aren't any really different than this. Yeah. Castamaniato, come on, it's just a dude gets bricked up in a wall. <laughs> That's all it is. That's all it is. And this is, you know, a dude gets killed with the leg of lamb. That's all it is. Yeah. There's the one uh, guys just get burned up dressed like uh, apes. <laughs> That's all it is. That's all it is. You know, the one's got the buried a heart in his floorboards and it tells the cops on him. That's all it is. That's all it is. I want to thank our reader, Heather Klinky. <laughs> Heather, thank you so much for reading for us once again. She's amazing as always. Yes. I want to also thank our seven mighty stakers, the patrons who make these free monthly shows happen. I'm going to start by thanking Crypto Cartographer. Alistair Brooks, thank you. The twins. I want to thank the twins. And of course, I want to thank Jason McKittrick of Crypto Curium. Angelina Brown, thank you so much. Evan, thank you so much. And finally, thank you, Eric Gordon. You guys are the best. Thanks for keeping this free show going, keeping it alive. We're actually recording this before the new year, but I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Yes. This is our first show for January. We had some, we did a little reorganization. We had some ghost stories on the bill for after this, but we may reorganize a little bit. So to be determined on the next story, but we'll be filling that information in soon, possibly in these very show notes. So please stay tuned for that. That's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. At strangestudies.com. And Patreon. Strange studies of strange stories. Ah!